Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unheard. I am Freddie Sayers. If you haven't heard of Mary Harrington, then the first thing you need to do after this interview is race to unheard.com and sign up for our daily newsletter because she is one of our star columnists. She started writing for us in 2019 and has grown into a bit of a cult figure since then with her fearless, provocative, brilliant columns that she writes for us every week. She is a feminist, but of a very different type. Think not Gloria Steinem, Jermaine Greer, bra burning, but no, she is the high priestess of a new kind of philosophy she calls reactionary feminism. Today, she launches her first book, Feminism Against Progress, and she's here in the studio to talk about it. Welcome, Mary. Thank you for having me, Freddie. Mary, congratulations on your book. It is looking beautiful here, um, standing in between us. There's a lot in it. Some of it, the themes unheard readers might be familiar with, but there's also quite a lot of new ideas there, throwing things forward. I guess we should start with a little bit more about you, because your history, as you've described it in this book, is quite an important part of the evolution of your ideas. You're thought of as a conservative at this point. Whether that was always true, I guess it wasn't. Tell us in a kind of summary what journey you've been on since your 20s. You, you talk about having lived in a lesbian commune at one point. That probably gets overstated. It was, it was a house chair with pretensions, it's probably fairer. Um, but we were, we were genuinely trying to live communally. Um, it was all women, it was an experience. There were lots of things that were nice about it. Um, it fell apart, I was, so that was, some of that was my fault. Um, I'm not going to say any more about how or why, but some of it was my fault. Um, it left, that, that was a contributing factor. I suppose I, I've, I've shared that about my life because it's a, it, it, was one of, it was one of many, many, many fronts on which I was trying to, trying to live my ideas about how the world ought to, my, my ideals. You know, I wanted to live non-hierarchically. I wanted to live experimentally. I wanted to live differently. You know, I didn't. I didn't want to be trapped in the in the bourgeois patriarchal heteronorm. Um, I was an early adopter of of many of the ideas which are now very, very much a part of mainstream culture war. I suppose. So, what would you have called yourself back then? Were, were you a socialist? Were you an anarchist? Were you a well? How would you have described yourself? I don't think I. I, I think I was so anti all of it that I was just. I, I would. I would have rejected the idea that I had to have an ism. I think I would have thrown that scornfully back in your face. And, and not even so, a progressive at that point. But were were people were people identifying as progressives at that point? Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, that's sort of that, that's very much a kind of you know, it's a popular term of art now. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was that was a thing in quite the same way in the early noughties. So in a way, you you sort of anticipated a lot of these sort of reality-bending ideas that are sometimes called woke or hyper-progressive or, mm. or whatever. I was, I was fully, fully paid up believer in most of the things which now, which have been institutionalised, I think, in a sadly very reductive form, you know, and, and get, get complained about as wokeness. I was, I was woke. And that's throughout your 20s? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what happened? Was what it happened? a sudden switch? Was it, it a it all sort gradual of fell process? Up, it all fell apart at once. 
um, or slowly and then all at once. Um, you know, the, all, 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 these, my, all my experimental living situations seemed to end badly. And it's somehow, and although some, some of that was probably a me problem, um, I don't think it was just a me problem. There was something about trying to live non-hierarchically that never seemed to work out that way. And I, I began to feel as though all it was doing was serving to obscure actual power dynamics, which were more actually much more intractable than I had hoped. Um, so that, that was, but you could say, the first red pill. This, mm. this idea that really there are, there are enduring, obdurate power dynamics, which you just can't get rid of. And I, I started to wonder if maybe I was thinking wrong about, think, I was thinking about power wrong and thinking about where that comes from and how, these, how we navigate these things. And maybe I was just coming at it wrong. So was, um, was, my, it, was, yeah. it, was it hurtful? Period. I mean, do you, do you think you've? It was you devastating because sort of... it, it wasn't. It wasn't just that. It wasn't just my domestic situations that fell apart. My my the startup that I was involved in also. Or uh, it wasn't so much that it fell apart, although it didn't end up becoming the stratospheric thing we'd hoped. But it was it it, it was very much a, that that enterprise. It brought together a lot of very naughty ideas. Um, it was it was an incredibly third way project. You know, it came out of this op real optimism, which I remember, and I think you and I have spoken about before, but you remembering as well, this genuine, deeply felt optimism that it might be possible to square the circle. You know, it might be possible to be both, to get filthy, stinking rich and also to save the world. Be a great world. person. Yeah and, to, yeah, and to be a nice person. You know, that, that's the sort of essence of the, of the new labour mm. uh, aspiration. You know, that we, we, you, you can be intensely relaxed about people getting filthy, stinking rich as long as they pay their taxes. And you can, you know, social enterprise was the way forward. And, you know, if we only, if we only unleash the creativity of the market into the realm of, you know, making the world a better place, then that's what would happen. And actually, <laughs> with hindsight, that's, that's really the inception of woke capital, isn't it? That's that, that's that idea, just writ large, um, and somewhat bastardised. But that's, that's woke capital there. And so I was there at the mm. beginning of woke capital, you were, you were and I was all curve. for it. You I was, were ahead of the curve. I know, I've, I've, I say, I joke sometimes that I'm this chronic political hipster. And then I, I sort of find myself there slightly, slightly ahead of things which haven't quite happened yet. And then, then they happen, and I'm like, well, that's not really what I was hoping for at mm. all. <laughs> well, in a way, I mean, this book is a sort of a prescription or an idea of how the rest of uh, the woke community might kind of catch up with you on your journey in some way. So let, let's complete your, your journey, since that's what I, I started with. So you became disillusioned. Hurt. Yeah, I, I lost my faith in progress. Um, and that, it happened slowly and then all at once. You know, the, the, house, the, the house share with pretensions imploded. And then the startup imploded, or rather I was expelled. I think that's probably more accurate. I was expelled for just being impossible to work with, um, which, which I was. That's just true. I'm probably unemployable in any capacity other than <laughs> being an unheard columnist. And the, and the, 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 um, the lesbian relationships, and um, all that, of that? Is, is... I don't really know what happened there except that... I was probably always more bisexual than I was straight up lesbian. Um, I've, I was very, I'm very I remain to, to, to this day very grateful to the community of women who welcomed me and made me feel safe and gave me a space to be, to be outside the heterosexual dynamics, a lot of which I found very uncomfortable and unhappy. And I, I'm very grateful to those communities for having given me space and respite for all of those all of those years and I feel you know some some honestly quite somewhat embarrassed on you know on behalf of all of the women who are genuinely just obdurately they're only ever going to be same sex attracted um, for letting the side down I mean it's such a distance isn't it from it where is. you are now it you is. even talk about how at one point you you went by the name Sebastian I did so, I did I changed days. I changed my name I was I was fully fully into the whole idea that we can all perform our gender I was a butlerite a card carrying butlerite well, you were, were, and I, I these would, days you, they would have called you some sort of yeah, either yeah, yeah. non-binary or trans I or? would have I if if I were 21 now I'd be I'd be all the way into that 100% no question about it and you know, I would never want I would never want my story the, the my account of having you know, spent some time in same-sex relationships. I'd never want that to be used to imply that, in fact, no, nobody is ever, everyone's only ever pretending. 
You know, that's, you know, I, I, I'll make that clear because I probably don't spell it out often enough. You know, it would be easy, it would be easy to weaponize a story like that to say, well, you know, you, you just need, you just need to meet the right man. It's a conversion therapy right, exactly. journey. Everyone just needs to, everyone just needs read, to meet read the right, Mary's book and, right, and, and then move meet to the right Cambridge. Man. <laughs> and, and there are, and it seems pretty clear to me that there's, there's a robust um, subset of the LGBTQ identified community for whom that's just not true. You know that who are who, who are and will always be just attracted to people of the same sex, and that's just how it is. You know, and those people exist. And um, it, as it has, it turned out I wasn't one of them. And identity for me turned out to be a much more movable feast than that. I suspect that a lot of the you know people say the number of the number of young people identifying as LGBTQ has grown enormously. Mm. I suspect that the absolute number of obdurately gold star same sex attracted people is probably pretty consistent. You know, as a subset of that, but there's a great many more people who are so in the space fashion, that I yeah. Fashion. I'm not going to use the word fashion, but that it's culturally much, it's much more normalised to explore that space now. And I would, I, I'm willing to bet that most of the increase is much more in the kind of terrain that I found myself in in my 20s, for better or for worse. And you, we can, you know, people of good faith may disagree. And they might then go to where you went in your 30s. And they ultimately, might. And they is, might or they might which not. Which is what? Tell us that. Well, so give, uh, uh, let's go to decade number three. Here. Well, by, by the time I was in, into my mid-30s, I was married, not living in London, uh, no longer no longer doing, no longer curating interactive art events and doing ex going to experimental hipster nights and working in web startups and doing all of that avant-garde-ish stuff that I had been doing. The opposite, um, almost. Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I felt like I'd just been kicked out of that world or that that world had fallen apart and turned out to be an illusion. I felt, I felt like it was like, it's really hard to, it, it just felt as though it had, all, it had all just been a lie or an illusion. And you and, ran away from it. And you? actually I should just, just accept the fact that I'm a normal person I and mean, I should just get on with being ordinary and stop mm. having these delusions of other differentness. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get on with trying, doing my level best to be as normy as possible. You know, all of that just turned out to be nonsense. I'm just going to be as normal, just do my best to be normal. So that involved living in a village, in, a, in outside. Uh, no, that, I mean that happened a bit further. Yeah, you know, it wasn't. I, I was still living in London, for, but I, but I got a money job, and you know, around the same time, I met the man I'm now married to. Um, you know, that that was a very, that was a sort of grounding. You know, mm. I try, I try not to. I, I try not to share, you know, our relationship doesn't just belong to me. So I, I, I try, that's, a, that's kind of a black box. There's um, one relationship uh, which we have to talk about, which is your daughter and your, your motherhood. Because if you were kind of on a, on a journey already by the sta stage of getting married, what you've written about for us and, and recount in this book is that the experience of becoming a mother fast forwarded that shift. It did. Yeah, by, by, then, by then we moved to the countryside. Um, when when she was born, it just completely reorganized my, how I thought about everything. Because I'd, I'd sort of taken it, it had just been an unquestioned assumption up to that point that the default condition of people was to be alone, um, to be separate, They're sort of radically atomized. I always felt fundamentally very alone, as if it was just me and any, any iota of connection I ever had with another person was rare and fleeting and precious. But that it, was not, it wasn't something that you could rely on. Um, and that just, that, it was just different after she, I, I no longer felt like that after she was born because she didn't feel like she was separate to me, my body. And it was a very, it was, it was really disorienting and took some getting used to. Um, it, was like, it was like I'd grown another limb. Who, that was suddenly separate from me and still needed to be cared for as urgently as if it, as if it she was still part of my body. It's it's very difficult to put into words. But if I've I've asked I've compared notes with any number of other mothers who say that that's just what it feels like, you so, know. And, and the and her her well being was, was was as urgently important to me as if as if it as if she had been still coextensive with my body. So there's there's sort of a number of things going on there. There's a sense that your sort of floating individual identity, atomized as you mm -hmm. call it, has been challenged because there's now a, a person to whom you're physically attached. And there's also something going on around your, your sort of body. Your, you, you've described it, how sort of the, the bodily feeling of motherhood with everything breastfeeding from the act of giving birth sort of reacquainted you with your body in some way and, yeah. and made you more aware of well, what exactly? Tell us. 
Well, I suppose I've just by nature, if in case any, in case you haven't noticed yet, I'm more, I'm, I'm by nature just more of a cerebral person. I never, I never particularly, I've, I'd never felt very at home in my body. You know, I spent spent my teens wishing I could just be a disembodied floating consciousness. You know, again in a way which I've I've sort of theorised and in the context of the, the sort of social the body dissociation, social contagions, which I see as having swept over the world since the normalisation of the internet. But I mean, this was this was the kind of default condition for me was to feel a little bit a little a little dissociated from my body, and to find myself in this viscerally embodied. State, you know, needing to be viscerally embodied in order to be present for my daughter and to be a, a good mother to my daughter was again it's a new experience and very very all-consuming and very absorbing and very different and inevitably being being who I am um, it left it, it left me thinking you know, <laughs> I couldn't just leave it at that I couldn't just think well this well this is a bit different and then get on with my life you know I was in, I, I end up theorizing about it <laughs> because that's just what I do. Um, and that I think the se that was the second ever article I wrote mm. for Unheard was about how motherhood nuked my liberalism because it was it's just not possible to square that experience with the idea that we're all atomized um, idea first subjects. It just doesn't work. And that that set so off just explain that for so for our, our, our listeners, explain how becoming a mother nuked your liberalism because <laughs> there are lots of liberal mothers out there who so, might not understand that well uh, it, it made me question a number of very basic assumptions that I'd had about what a person is and what what the ideal state of being is which which I'd, I'd inherited pretty much wholesale from the, the kind of the liberal worldview which we all absorb from the culture generally because it's just the world the world it's in the water it's in the air it's just the world we grow up with and which is your know, basic belief that we're all separate um, we're all individuals we're all the the best the ideal state to be in the most dignified um, admirable state to be in is one in which you're independent from other people you know that you can do things on your own that you, you don't have to rely on other people, that you're not shaped particularly by, you're not influenced by other people, that you create yourself, as it were, out of whole cloth and can and are self-contained. You know, that's the, you know, that's a slightly reductive picture, but it's it's there in the water. I mean, you know, it's it, all the way from kids' films to, you know, major, major you know, world-changing works of philosophy. You know, take something like that paradigm and try to make sense of how, how we should live as individuals or together in a polity, based on that fundamental assumption that we're all separate by default. So you, th you, you think of that as quite a central th thread in liberalism? It is. It's a central th thread in liberalism, and it's and trying to be that as a woman is a central. It's one of the dominant threads in feminism. You know how how to be an independent person in that sense when you're a woman and you know therefore physically more subject to male violence for example or when you're a mother and you know the world expects you to have obligations to your children or where where you can be you can be impregnated against your will for example these are all these these are all th sex specific things that challenge the the aspiration to separateness and independence and autonomy and there are a great many others as well but so then if you're if you're saying farewell or you're not so into this idea of kind of hyper individual liberal existence where we're all negotiating as as individuals what is it that you became more enamored by or convinced by well, what, what's what it, the alternative what it, what it left me asking is if if in fact the experience of being a mother has left me wondering if even aspiring to this state of separateness is desirable. Because it, it suddenly seemed less desirable to be separate in that way. Because at the end of the day, it's, it, it, was, it was no longer meaningful to say, I should just be able to do what I want. Because if my daughter was screaming for milk at four in the morning, I couldn't very well just roll over and say, I don't want to. You know, that felt, it was just vis at a, Im impossible at a sort of organismic level. To, to respond like that to somebody who so radically needed me and to whom I was so devoted in that very animal way. And I thought, well, if, if, this, is, if this is my experience of what it, 
if this is the most important thing to me right now, and my entire ideology up until this point is saying that actually this is not, this is, this is bad, then is that a me problem or is that an ideology problem? Mm. But if, it felt a, good, is what you're saying. So, is, yeah. And, it, I'm and thinking, it felt somehow, in, you in, just knew that it was good. In, interdependence felt to me more valuable and important at that, you know, and in ways which were just inaccessible from within the liberal atomistic paradigm. So that pushes you in a direction which we're now going to yes. explore. We're now in, because you've very masterfully given us a bit of a segue there by talking about liberalism. Having kind of introduced you with your story, let's now talk to the sort of first part of your book, which is really a history of women, or it's an it's a alternative lens to view the kind of progress or not of women from pretty much medieval times through to the present day. And your, your very challenging and provocative idea, I think can roughly be summed up as it wasn't just a, a case of things getting better and better for women. Your view is actually that in some ways, what appeared like progress made things worse for women. So let's start at the beginning because you make quite a big distinction between the sort of industrial area and what happened before that in the, the medieval time. Let's go back, take us back to 1450. Because <laughs> at one point in the book you say your, your sort of new feminism is more 1450 than 1950 and we'll, we'll come to that, but let's start there then. 1450, what was better for women in 1450 than it is now? Well, I'm I'm, I'm going to finesse your your summary of, of my my hist my reread of women's with the history of women in modernity, Freddie, by saying it's not so much that things have, it's not just that things have got worse. It's more that what's normally framed as a story of progress, which is to say the the emergence of the women's movement from really from Mary Wollstonecraft onwards, roughly speaking. Um, is it's not that's not just a story of progress in a moral in an absolute moral sense it's a story about women's specific responses to it's it's about a, the story of women's responses to technology and 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 the changes the radical transformative effect that industrial technologies had throughout society including on how men and women lived together and and how they managed family life and the the the, the most the most i mean there were for for that uh, that first industrial period, and I'll I'll come to my my subsequent point, which is that we've now left the industrial era. In fact, some you know half a century ago, but for for the for the industrial era, perhaps the most salient transformation that was wrought by technology and which was responded to by eventually by the women's movement was the fact that work left the home, and that just wasn't the case in the medieval era for most people. Yeah, for most people, home home and work were the same thing, and and women worked. Um, around being mothers sometimes to sometimes very young children. For, so, for example, in an agrarian setting, it wasn't as though women sat around doing nothing while the men did all, did all the farming. You know, women, women worked as much as men, they just did different jobs. So what were they doing? Um, so, I mean, very, very crudely, what, what, I mean, it, it varies a great deal according to context, but very crudely what tends to happen in an agrarian setting is that men produce raw materials and the women process them roughly speaking. So for example, you know, the men might plough fields and grow wheat and then the women, will, the women might grind it and turn it into bread. Or the men might produce meat or wool and the women might spin it and turn it into textiles. And I've taken textile making as a, paradig as a, as a very good example of, of, of a field of women's work which, which, which was radically challenged by industrialization. Because it was, it, for some tens of thousands of years prior to industrialization, it had, al it had always been women's work. And, and still a, is in, in some parts of the world. Great, in a, but yeah, it's extraordinary yeah, yeah. in how many different types of societies in different Textile geographical... Textile making is women's work. And, and you still find it in and less developed a, I found a, I found a super, an historian of, of textile making who argues that it's, it tends to end up being women's work because it's very compatible with having little children. You can, you can raise a loom off, the, just in very material ways. You can raise your loom off the ground. You know, if your child is, is eating something it shouldn't or running, running into the fire you or whatever, you can stop and put the thing down and go and, 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 and you can come back to it. It's a social thing to do. So it, it, it works just within the much the wider material social context so of, of being a mother and also being economically productive. But then under industrialization, this is suddenly something which is done in a centralized setting, you know, with dangerous heavy machines, you know, to a shift pattern. And, and all of a sudden, it's just not compatible with, with having a toddler underfoot anymore. So what do you do? 
And some women responded, you know, some found, found childcare or drugged their children or neglected their children. their children. Yes, that Marx reports that in industrial communities, women who were forced by economic necessity to work would sometimes give their children opiates um, to just keep them keep them placid while they while they of necessity went to work. And there was some I mean, the the early industrial era was horrendous for women before there was any kind of workplace protection for, for mothers. So this is then the idea that the, the Industrial Revolution in the you know, 18th, 19th century, by creating a kind of technology that only happened in factories, kind of broke the homestead as a coherent, collaborative project between men and women, and either gave it, made it into the man's job to go and work, or you might even say worse, so, uh, something which the mother had to do and therefore find alternative arrangements for just just so um so there were and and, and essentially under those circumstances once workers left the home women who are mothers have two choices they can either find alternative childcare or some you know co cobble some kind of childcare together somehow or they can they can stop working and look after kids instead and essentially most women who could afford to would take to, took option B, or a great many more women who could afford to took option B because you know given the choice between working in a in a textile factory or looking after your kids, I mean it's 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 kind of a no-brainer if you can afford to. Okay, um, we but, but, but there, Sorry, were, there were a number of there are a number of consequences downstream of that. One of which was that they in, effectively under those circumstances women lost economic agency, and that's the, this is the very long answer to your question of in what ways it made life worse. You know there were a great many things that got better. I mean work was less life life was less grueling. You know for for those who for those who were you know bourgeois women you know life was probably much more comfortable and materially abundant. You know there were lots of upsides to industrialization. <laughs> it's not as though I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not unambiguously a frame breaker, but, but there were, but there were trade-offs. So I, I think. So in what sense do they get less economic? They, they lost, empowered? they lost economic agency because they were no longer, they were no longer equal contributors to a productive household. You know, they and you know, the bourgeois housewife was e totally economically dependent on her husband, and re and you've got to remember that this was against the legacy, legal and cultural background in which it, the the basic unit of society wasn't individuals but households and then and the man was the titular head of the household so not only women lost any lost their informal um, economic clout but in and and gained very little com and compensatory clout. They they weren't they weren't they weren't able to. It was very difficult to divorce. They had no right to their children. Should they be? Should they find themselves in a difficult situation? They were. It was it was wasn't really done to work. They had no 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 right to vote. I mean, um, and 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 this is all. And and they no longer have any. They're no longer making any direct economic contribution to the household. So under those circumstances, it's all very well being a stay-at-home mum, provided your husband likes you and is a responsible husband. But if you know, but you know, unfortunately, there are situations where that isn't always the case. And so there were some, and 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 so those women who found themselves very much on the back foot began to agitate for property ownership and for the right to work and for the ability to divorce and for the right to vote. You know, not unreasonably, and saying so that we need the right to be people on the same terms as men within within this new economic order that we find ourselves. And in. so was born 20th century feminism. And so was born 20th century. But, but against before, that, before I let you get to 20th century feminism, I haven't. Is, there was one more bit. I, okay. I just wanted to. Uh, but the other side of that, um, and this, I suppose. This is the this is my counterintuitive argument. Um, during the nineteenth century, the other side of that were those women who argued in defence of the home. You know, which is which is read by feminist historiographers now as uh, uh, women as false consciousness, essentially. You know, as women who are in hock to patriarchy and trying to legitimise its oppressive yada yada yada. But but to me, 19, the nineteenth century, the so-called cult of domesticity. Um, which was a huge body of writing, which was produced by bourgeois housewives in praise of the domestic, of women's domestic role under those circumstances. This it reads as feminism. Um, it's just a type of feminism which is almost illegible from from the from the other side of the looking glass that we've been through since, because what they're doing is is they're they're extolling the virtues of of the domestic realm and care and of this space outside the market where interdependence is still crucially important and they're trying to make sure that even under these conditions where they've they've lost agency effectively that the, what they do is still value, valued and important and so to me that's it. So you see those some sort of pamphlet writer in the 1860s who is talking about the beauty of the homestead and women's 
role in the domestic setting as a, a type of it's feminist, type of feminism. because it's they're trying feminism. to defend and get proper value for the work yeah. that they're doing. Exactly. So I think we're going to get on to the 20th century and the 1960s and, and modern progress and the rest of it. But I think probably people listening to this, if they are fully signed up progressives, would be kind of throwing things at the screen <laughs> and saying, how can she sit there and say, sort of romanticise the 1450s or the, any kind of pre-industrial era? Because this is a period where, as you say, women had no rights at all. They were they were to all they were pretty much owned by their husbands in in law um and you know where, how can that possibly be better what uh, quite apart from all of the material things that you've already touched on the fact that things got life got healthier and longevity and improvements in medicine and everything what would you say to the person who is sort of gawping at the screen saying how could she how dare she my counterpoint to that would be well i might i'm I could probably throw some counterexamples about ways in which we've traded off in exchange for the dividend of freedom and quote-unquote personhood that we have now. But you know, le- le- bracketing that, because we can come back to that a bit later, uh, the counterpoint I would offer to that is that my read of the anthropology of the, the studies people have done of, if you like, agrarian communities, pre- pre-modern uh, communities that live in a pre-modern way, suggest that women in those communities very often wield an immense amount of power, but it, it's, it's, very, it's not very legible in terms that we would understand today because it's, it, it, it happens informally. Um, and this is by no means always is that universal. Is controlling their husbands? Or is well, there, well, what for, are we talking about here? So I mean, for, 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 for example, women in a village context might well, they, they, they might not have very much to do with the outside world and they might not officially take the decision. They might all say, you know, my husband is the head of the household. But if there was something they didn't want to see happen, they would make sure it didn't happen. And if there was something they wanted to see happen, they might well have ways of pulling strings just... Or, and if, if, if they disapprove of somebody, it might, they might be punished by being ostracized within the community. You know, if, if somebody, you know, they, they wield power by you know, controlling... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Access to information by ostracizing people who are frowned upon, by 
by by managing who gets who gets access to resources or or or, or on particularly and very importantly by 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 controlling the power of public shame so if somebody within that community steps out of line as far as the women are concerned they'll be shamed by everybody and this is just a fate worse than death but that doesn't sound so great to me that this well, is, I mean, it's, it doesn't, I mean this, that sounds but it, I mean, are we, are, it, we're not proposing to go back to that no I'm not, I'm not but, well uh, but, I mean, well I mean you, 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 uh, I, I, <laughs> you, is there anything very different to that is there anything much between that Freddie and what we have in terms of cancel culture on the internet today but we don't like cancel culture, do we? <laughs> I might suggest that we, we're going to be stuck with it in one way or another. You know, we're either going to have village-level cancel culture or we're going to have village-level cancel culture on steroids at the level of the entire internet. And, you, it, it, and I would argue that this is just a function of how communities work. This is just a function of how, how groups of people operate. And you just get to choose, you can choose what scale it operates at, but you're not going to be able to get rid of it. Okay, so we, we, we've got, we're up to the 19th, we're, we're into the 20th century. But or, or, I, um, I suppose the, the basic point I'm wanting to, I, I want to make here is that power operates on a number of different levels and can be wielded in a number of different ways. And historically, uh, my, my, re, my, my read of women's history is that informal power has, operates in a, in a number of ways which are just less legible to formal historiography. And so in other words, the kind of pastiche of this millennia of patriarchy with women only oppressed, always invisible, always subjugated, it doesn't tell the whole picture and actually there were ways that they were I more empowered. I dare say that there were. I dare say there were a great many women who were who were beaten by tyrannical husbands. Though there are there are still to this day a great many women who suffer at the hands of tyrannical husbands. Um, I, but I would I would suggest that if you if you imagine that was just what it was like for everybody all of the time, then <laughs> I mean you you think think about the Chaucer. Chaucer wouldn't have written the Wife of Bath and had everybody relate to that as the, as a immediately recognisable character archetype if it were not the case that women had plenty of ways of asserting themselves. Mm. I'm sure all of our audience have read Chaucer's <laughs> Wife of Bath, but maybe you just She's want to a, explain. The, the, the Wife of Bath is, is one, of the, one of the characters in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales written, was it the 14th century? You, mm -hmm. you, yeah. yeah, 14th century. Um, from, and she is, I think she's on, she, she, she's buried something like three or four or five husbands. She's inherited all of their wealth. She basically does what she likes. She's bawdy, she's outspoken. She's, she's a ferocious, uh, feisty matron who, who does what she wants and has a great time doing it. And she's, a, she's an incredibly memorable figure. I mean, I've met, I've met women like her. <laughs> These larger-than-life older women. I, I, I think she's she's a wonderful character. But you know, if if Chaucer could be writing her in the 14th century, I, I'd humbly suggest that the women like her existed in the 14th century. And if so, they can't all have been all you know, cringing, oppressed, to, uh, un, un, underdogs all of the time. So maybe it's the 1350s. We're going back to the 1450s. <laughs> so let's go fast forward now to the 1950s and 1960s because when people think about feminism these days that's what they normally that's the sort of lens that they normally look through that kind of progress that kind of um, what you might call sex positive individual liberation women's lib what do you now think of that movement was that a good thing Again, it, it it depends a great deal where you're standing. You know, I, it's not my it's not my position. You know, I, I call myself a reactionary, um, but it, it's not my position that things are just all self-evidently getting worse any more than things are. That you know, that would just be that would just be to adopt the. I, if I don't believe in progress, I don't believe in decline either. You know, things some things get better and some things get worse, and I'm I always I'm just interested in disaggregating some of those things rather than trying to map it all onto a. So what did we lose? So, 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 so we, what, you, what did what did you what, lose? What was what what was gained was a great dividend of freedom, which landed asymmetrically. I, I would I would suggest much more amongst um, middle and upper class women. So there were, there were a huge there were great num great many things that became easier and better and freer for a great many women with the arrival of the pill. 
Um, so the pill, was, you, it's the first time you've mentioned it in this interview, so but I've, that's quite central to your it's, it, the, the pill, history, isn't the, it? The pill and abortion are, to me, in, in my, my reading of women's history, they the, the arrival of the pill and legal abortion ended a period of back and forth between the feminism of freedom, which is to say we must, be, we must enter the market as, as atomized persons on the same terms as men. Um, and the feminism of care, which was represented by the cult of domesticity, which said, no, in fact, we, we need and are needed by and caring and the, you know, looking after dependents and is good, is good and right and proper and needs to be valued and needs to be shielded as something which exists and has, has importance outside the market. And we, we need to mount a coherent defense of those, those spaces, the, the home as distinct from the cut and thrust of individualism and competition and commerce and trying to get ahead and climb the greasy pole and so on. So, so these, are, these are the two poles that really went back and forth and, and there's this hugely rich, varied and contested history of women going back and forth over which of these is more important and how, um, depending on the, the particular context. And, and, my, and, and, and where I, and I, and my reading of the, the, what happened with the arrival of the pill and later with abortion was that it, it settled that debate conclusively in favour of the feminism of freedom. Because it seemed, well... Because it, 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 it sort of cut the bodily ties with cut the bodily ties, you know. Motherhood was no longer something which was just irreducibly part of the condition of being a woman unless you just took a vow of chastity. You know, there was up until up to that point, it it was relatively difficult to, you know, un unless you just foreswore having sex altogether. You know, there were certain things that were just relatively difficult to plan. You know, you sort of took it took it pretty much as read that you were probably going to have kids if you had anything to do with a man in that way. Um, but with the arrival of the pill, it, it it cut that it cut that tie. But you know, in, it it materially produced a ratchet. The the arrival of the pill produced a ratchet towards legal abortion because it. Although the, the number of accidental pregnancies, the idea was that the number of accidental pregnancies would go down, but in fact they went up because people were just having so much more sex. Um, and so then people were still so wrestling. Think, so you're saying there were more unwanted pregnancies after the yes. pill than before? Yes. You know, there were more, it, even though the even though the number of the number of accidental pregnancies per casual encounter went down, the number of casual encounters went up so much that the absolute number of pregnancies, accidental un, unwanted pregnancies, went up. So abortion, so legal it, abortion, followed it on. It created a ratchet towards um, women being able to to terminate preg their pregnancies. And wherever you stand on, I mean, there's a whole incredibly bitter and contested discourse around fetal personhood and just an immensely complicated area. But where, where I've situated this in terms of the argument between the feminism of freedom and the feminism of care is that wherever you stand on those other issues around abortion, it's about the, most, about the strongest statement you can make in favour of freedom, even at the expense of care. It's, I, don't think it's, I don't see how it's possible to make a stronger statement, say my freedom matters this much, that I'm... I'm pregnant if I let this continue I, you know, a, a new human will result Up right now this new human is absolutely dependent on my body my freedom matters sufficiently that I'm, I'm just going to end that person's potential life um, in, in, in defence of my, of my autonomy So you, this is where you get into really quite dangerous territory I it would is, say um, in a, as far as at least feminism is concerned because I suspect most right-thinking feminists would have a polite discussion with you about whether there were things about medieval versus industrial uh, women, women's experience that were gained or lost and not come to blows. But if you started saying that the pill and abortion were bad things, that they are kind of the totemic well, they are parts this, of what being a modern feminist but, means. But this so, is so, this is because the winners write the history books, ready. Um, and if you if if up until that point you'd had a back and forth between the feminism of freedom and the feminism of care, the 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 fact that the feminism of freedom has so definitively won is part of the reason why it's very it, it's part of the reason why the cult of domesticity is illegible as feminism, and it's also part of the reason why it seemed the the proposing that there might be a feminist case for. Um, welcoming every baby is almost is is just straightforward anathema, because the feminism of freedom is so entirely in, entirely swept the board in terms of defining what it means to be a feminist that it's it's almost impossible to make that case. And you don't actually make that case 
in this book, the, the feminist case for so, welcoming every baby. That's the, that's the case against abortion. You, you, you sort of hinted it, but you don't quite go there. What is your view on that? And what does a reactionary feminist think about the legal abortion? I do not think that we could... I, I, I would not try and make the case that adopting... I'm going to come at this another way. If, somebody, if we were to ban abortion tomorrow, it would be an absolute disaster for women. As a feminist, and in good conscience, I couldn't make that case. I think that would, that would just be mad and sadistic and would, would make everything a great deal worse for a great many women. Because the material and the cultural conditions that surround um, contraceptive use and sexual norms and yada, 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 are all so geared towards the the technologies that we have to, to prevent pregnancies and to terminate unwanted pregnancies, that if you, just, if you just took away the ability to do that and left everything else as it is, you just create an absolute nightmare scenario for, for countless women. And, I, and in fact, that's, you know, that, that's what happened in Romania when Ceausescu banned those practices in the, with the intention of increasing the birth rate. And all he did was produce hideous deaths to back, in backstreet abortions and a, a generation of neglected babies in orphanages. You know, and as a, I, as a feminist, I can't, I can't advocate that. that so makes no what sense. would the kind of cultural and technological <clears throat> and societal changes need to be in order to make that end point plausible or desirable? Well, there, there are a great many changes which I would love us to make, all of which would take us in that direction and which I would see as being in women's interests, whether or not you would, you would advocate um, ending the practice of abortion, you know, which I think you can make a feminist case for either way. Um, one of them... I'm going to stop you there because once again, with extreme elegance, you have brought us to the third part of our <laughs> interview, Mary. It's like you've, you've done this before. We've talked about your history. We've talked about the the history of women over many centuries, it's now time to, to look forward. Um, it, what is the manifesto? What, <laughs> what do your followers, what are you encouraging your followers to do in this era? This bit was really in order hard to, to write. In order to get to the future we want. So tell us what the principles one, two, and three of reactionary feminism are and what, what, women, what you would like to see women do that they're not. Well, I, I found this bit really difficult to write. I, I started it and started it and gave up three or four times because I was trying to write it for you know, a, a, too many too many different implied audiences. And I thought you know, try, trying to take into take into account what you know the well well seasoned feminists of the sort of 1970s and 80s vintage might think of it, and what women my age might think of it. And in the end, I, in the end, I threw all of that out of the window. And I thought, well, they're all they're all just going to absolutely hate all of this. So I'm just going to write it for for me if I were 22 now, and hadn't hadn't yet acquired all the battle scars I've I've acquired since. So, so what would you so tell your 22 year old? What would self? I what would I tell my 22 year old self? Don't touch the pill. Don't don't and tell don't don't go on the pill. Don't tell all your friends to tell all your friends to avoid it as well. So that um, so so that I just want to pause there. So mutiny against mutiny the, so against the transhumanist neutering of theme of women's bodies. So in the, the first name act of, of rebellion that the yeah, the modern contemporary going, reactionary feminist can do is to stop. Is to go the on pill. strike. Is is to go on, yeah. So. With, with, withdraw your withdraw the labour of your body from its commodification. So, women who are on the pill and are having a sex life either within marriage or a long-term relationship or not, and are happily enjoying their life and are really pleased to be on the pill, I guess. In, in, in the in the Mary Harrington world, they're just allowed to carry on. Uh, well, you, you don't have to listen to me. But you, would you try to persuade them? If you're on the pill and you're having a great time, I mean, be, be my guest. You know, that's not really who I'm talking to. But there are a great many women who are, who are perhaps on the pill or feel like they ought to be on the pill or are pressured by their doctor to be on the pill and who are not having great sex lives. Um, because I, my, my argument is that this, it's not just an, an individual decision. The, a, a, a culturally contracepted... 
um, set of sexual norms has much wider consequences than just for me as an individual or for some 22-year-old as an individual. Um, it, it, changes the, it changes the entire field of relationship formation in ways which I set out in, in great detail in part two of the book and some of the, some of the negative downstream consequences of that, particularly as they've been accelerated by the digital revolution and by, by dating apps into a sort of general condition of of often loveless and unfulfilling sex um, and general and, and pervasive relationship impermanence. Uh, my, my good friend Louise Perry has made the has, has written literally written the book on all of the ways that that is, is net negative for a great many women. So I, I urge you to read her book and just what what Louise says. But on so all of that. but so the the, the modern woman now who who stops taking the pill and it withdraws her as you put it, services from that marketplace, um, what, what is she going to gain? Well, it's not as though you can't a ever baby. have... It's not, it's not as though you can't ever have sex again, but you, you have a fairly robust reason not to have casual sex with people who are going to leave you feeling used, for example. And also, although this is not something that's very easy to talk about, um, it's an open secret amongst communities who practice natural family planning, that sex is just better when there's a possibility of conception. Um, and, and this obviously only applies in the context of a committed relationship. And you know, communities who practice natural family planning um, will, will manage their fertility and space children and so on. But it's, it's an open secret that it's, it's just better. And not least because there's a there's a measure of trust and intimacy and mutual respect between the partners, which is only a t only it's only possible to attain, I would argue, by putting the consequentiality back into sex. So, and the consequentiality is that a baby might yeah. be produced. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're, it's not just don't take the pill. It's stop having sex outside context where you'd be happy to have a baby. Yeah. Which is reactionary. Either marriage or a long-term relationship where you're pretty sure that your husband or boyfriend also wants a baby. Which is, the pro, which is in fact a pro-pleasure case as well as a pro-intimacy case for women because it's, the, the studies show consistently that women will, are far more likely to have an orgasm in the context of a long-term relationship. They have maybe a 10% chance in a casual encounter and much and closer to 60 or 70% chance of having an orgasm in the context of a committed relationship. So if you're holding out for that committed relationship, then you're much more likely to be having a nice time. And, there are, there are, and furthermore, there are other studies that show that it is in fact married couples who are having more sex. So this is the pro-sex case. I think that's, you, you might be stretching it with that. That uh, it's the way to, to the route to better sex is to stop taking the pill and only have sex within marriage because, as you put it earlier, the the overall amount of sex is going to go down very very dramatically. And surely there are lots of examples of what you then get is a no sex before marriage or nearest damn it society. It's my the, it's, it's my it's my settled opinion that no sex before marriage is a feminist position. So you want society to go back to no sex before marriage? Well, I'm saying that there the, the may well be something in it for women in terms of pleasure and intimacy and safety and uh, the opportunity to have children in a trusted, committed relationship, which is currently inaccessible to a great many women and, is, and as a, in a way which is causing a, great, a huge amount of pain, which is an undercounted cost of the, lev the, the, the pitch of freedom we've now arrived at. And there may well be women for whom this is not true, in which case I say, don't listen to me, go and do your thing. You know, <laughs> the world is set up for you at the moment, you know, knock yourselves out, you know, good luck, and I wish you well. But you don't for the think the, the result of that would be more unwanted pregnancies and therefore more abortions? To be clear, this is, none of this is a course of action that I recommend for people with poor impulse control. If you think you have poor impulse but control, please don't have, listen to humans me. Humans have <laughs> poor impulse control, don't they? Not all, I don't think, you know, I think we can hold ourselves to high standards, Freddie. And I think actually, if we're going to be holding people to high standards, then that's something which has traditionally started with women. You know, if, if, and if, if women are not willing to hold ourselves and our, and, and our menfolk to high standards, then nobody's going to. Okay, so no sex before marriage or thereabouts uh, as a kind of societal more. Um, abortion, does that feature in the radical feminist? Um, my, reactionary feminist program. In Would you my in my utopia, 
A, a, a utopian aim to work towards, I would say, would be a world where every baby is welcome. But we're a long way from there and there are so many things that need to change on the way to get there that I would prefer to work on the things which I can work with ambivalently pro-choice women on rather than trying to shoot for something which will alienate others with whom I could otherwise work constructively. So they, they, that's, that would be a lovely long-term Does that long mean you're not pro-choice? That means I am... I have, I have concerns. I, I think abortion is a bad metaphysic, which is net negative for women in terms of the bigger picture. However, it's where we are right now. And it, I, I would be extremely cautious about policies which tried to reverse that without taking into account the, 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 immense, the immense importance, the, the, well, the, 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 the structural nature of the changes it enables. There's a bit in your final section which also talks about Men, I think it's called Let Men Be, um, and how that's part of a programme of a, of a reactionary feminist future is to restore spaces in which men are allowed to be only men, um, and with it, some sort of programme of rehabilitating the men folk. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, this is, at its simplest, this is just a, a, plea, a plea in defence of sheds. Sheds, as in end of the garden. Well, I mean, the, that, that's the minimum viable unit of male, of man space, right? There's the garden shed um, where, where no scatter cushions are allowed. I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit frivolous here, but that's the sort of minimal, minimum viable unit. But there's something terribly lonely about sheds. And there are, and to my eye, there, are, there just aren't very many spaces where men can do shed things in, in the company of other men with no scatter cushions. And this, this is, to this, and to some, and the women's movement had, had bears some responsibility for that. And I think the costs of that in men's, in the formation of good men is undercounted. And I think the cost of that in men's loneliness and, and, and the well-documented higher rate of male suicidality, for example, is undercounted. Now, this, now what I'm saying here, I'm not saying, to be clear, that it's all the fault of those terrible man-hating feminists that men are now killing themselves in great numbers. I think that's a very, that's, that's far too reductive. Um, but it's an inevitable consequence of um, asking, you know, not without justice, that public, that spaces where public life and professional life are conducted should become co-ed, was that that percolated all the way throughout the, the, the social fabric and as a consequence a number of spaces which had previously served as community spaces for men who didn't who weren't necessarily running the world or buying and selling countries or closing deals you know also became co-ed in a way which has contributed to so you mean like working men's clubs working men's clubs for or example. even posh men's clubs just the idea that right. there should be literally places where men can be men, men without can, women. Right, exactly. Because you and defend really, single-sex spaces for women. Yes, so the, really, and really this, this, this entire line of thought came for me out of a retort which I've seen more times than I can count to those, those gender-critical feminists who would like to defend, for example, women's prisons, women's sports, women's refuges and so on as single sex spaces um, and to say no men are ever allowed here. And one of, the, one of the retorts that I've heard from men is how can you say that when you've, just in, when, when you've just spent 50 years insisting that all single sex men's spaces should become co-ed? You, you made your bed ladies and now you can lie in it. Um, I'm, I'm making, a, this, is, this is a reductive, but, but, but that's, the, that's the essence of the sentiment. And I was thinking, you know, is there actually, any, is there some justice in that? And I'm thinking, Yes. Yes. So yeah. this starts with kind of the, the yeah, as I said, either it's, it's the Carlton Club or the Garrick or one of those kind of posh men's clubs in London, but it's also working men's clubs in every town and small town across this country that have been, and, you know, pubs were quite male pubs for quite a long time. Pubs were all male apart from the, slug, the snug for a, a time immemorial. You're not suggesting we go back to all male pubs, though? Not. I, I think the, the, the culture has now changed now and that, that that's just not happening again but we could we could just not be quite we not massively stressed if men just wanted even the most minuscule space to just be men i don't see i don't see what's so terrible about that and yet it seems almost it seems very it seems radioactive to say so but i, I don't see how we can defend the sex segregated spaces for women unless we're also willing to contemplate the possibility that sometimes men need 
single sex space to do whatever. I've no idea what it is that men do. Those frequencies are when they're just amongst one another. Those frequencies are not accessible to me because mm. they're just not. I mean, there are large parts of the world where sex segregation is still practiced. I it mean, is. You, you, this sounds almost like some Muslim countries where places of prayer, for example, are sex segregated and so are many other areas of social life. That will spook a lot of people, I think. Well, the idea on, that is, is, Mary's, is Mary's vision here uh, taking us, I don't know, into some sort of place that sounds like a Muslim country that most people in the West are quite pleased we don't live in? Well, do you not think, though, Freddie, there's a great deal of space between absolutely everywhere must be must be entirely sex indifferent and even, even toilets must be gender neutral. Uh, there's a great deal of space between that and men, men and women can only interact with men who are, who they're, who are there in their immediate family in mixed, sex, in mixed company and otherwise must stay segregated at all times. There's a huge amount of space in between and I'm there's suggesting a there, is a, there is a spectrum. And, and what I'm suggesting is we could sidle a couple of micro more towards sex segregation and that would be in everybody's interest and just we could just be a little bit more realistic about allowing just a little bit of space for for men to be men on their own and women to be women on their own and that would be okay and that what would about, be what about boardrooms i mean this is this is a real kind of hot potato at the moment almost every big corporation in the world is now signing up to 50 percent women 50 percent men at the highest level in the boardroom do you approve of that? Or is that another space where you'd be relaxed if it's more men than women? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to say... Okay, here's what I think about that. Um, the, the logical extension of the, of, the set, of the sex neutrality, everything must be co-ed thing, is that men, even, we, we, we must be welcoming even to men who are not actually male and women who are not actually female. So if you... If you pursue the the logic of sex of coed sex neutrality everywhere, you you end up in, in inescapably at a point where yes, the boardroom can be you know, the boardroom can fill its obligation to be um, to be fifty fifty men and women, and and yet have every member still be male. I mean, that's sort of a separate issue, though, isn't it? Well, well, no, it's not. It's the same issue because the the, the logic of the logic of gender neutrality begins with the logic of of, of breaking down sex segregation. So, so, so the 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 all made the 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 fifty fifty men and women board boardroom, where in fact every member is male, is is a logical extension of the point which which makes which made all. All the all male spaces co-ed to That's begin the, with. That's the, uh, the sort of extreme edge of it. It's, yes, it's just a bit further down the line but, of the same logic. But I think a, a, a real mainstream question is whether you would support insisting on or heavily rewarding greater female participation in things like universities, companies, all of the engines of our society, the places where decisions are made, the places where um, economic power resides. Do, do you think that obsession, it feels like it, it is an obsession at the moment, not only on gender grounds, but now on racial and other grounds. Do you think that whole project is misguided mm -hmm. and that we should just let the some sort of natural result happen and be relaxed about it? Is that the Mary position? So no, no positive discrimination, no affirmative action of any kind, pretty much. I think we could live without it. In summary, what could be available to women in this different future that they are missing out on now, do you think? What is it, how would you pitch it? What, what is the kernel of what they could get back? Relationships. Um, the... The second part of the book, I've focused, I, I've called, I've, 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 I've themed the war on relationships, which is to say the in pursuit of absolute freedom, absolute autonomy under the sign of the feminism of freedom, we have, we've ended up in a, at a point where we're waging war on the relationships between men and women. 
um, the intimate relationships with a with a partner, if you like. Um, we've we've we ended up we end up waging war on the relationship between mothers and their babies, you know, dismantling the various parts of that and offering many of them up for sale. Um, and we've ended up waging war on our relationships with our own bodies, you know, in embracing a kind of radical dissociation from our embodied physiologies in, as a precondition of um, the, of a state of total freedom. And I would humbly suggest that for a great many women, that's just not a happy state of being, you know, to have no, no, no stable, loving partnership, to have no children and to have no sense of connection to her own body is for, for a great many women a living nightmare and it's and it's a reality and it's an undercounted cost of pursuing freedom at the expense of the of the many other things that that are important and needful and fulfilling as part of our life so this is a it's a it's a defense and a and a rallying cry for the feminism of interdependence and the feminism of relationship as something which is not without trade-offs in its own right you know, because nothing is ever free of trade-offs but but which is, is full of rich and humanizing and rewarding, life-giving things in its own right and just, just needs speaking for. Mary Harrington, thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.